Hi guys. We just wanted to come on before the show and say that this episode deals with murder and with violence and the content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the history of the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women that serve behind these walls. I am in the studio here with the brilliant Sky. Hi, that's Anthony, by the way. He Hello, didn't my say name his is own Anthony. Name. Yes, yes. <laughs> I uh, forget about that. Yeah, you. That's okay. I do too. Yeah. Well, this is a big episode. We're uh-huh. talking about kind of the namesake mm-hmm. of the episode, or or I will be, mm-hmm. and you're talking about. Grace Elizabeth Scott. Yes. There are so many. <laughs> There's a lot of middle names and there Graces are. and Elizabeths. There and are so many. To be fair, she has technically three first names. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. So, um, well, well, I think I went first last time, so would you like to start? Yeah, sure. So, uh, the namesake of this episode, my... Of the podcast. Of Yeah, of the podcast, mm-hmm. Behind Gray Walls. This comes from this inmate is... His name was Patrick Charles Murphy, number 2338. And uh, that is actually an alias. Uh, He also went under the names Henry Kennedy, um, Charles Miller, but his true name was Daniel W. Taylor. And he was born in 1882 in Decatur, Texas, which is in Wise County, north of of, uh, Fort Worth, uh, which is just kind of west of Dallas, northwest of Dallas. And he basically went on his own at the age of 13. And uh, he traveled and got whatever jobs he could. And then he joins the United States Army. And this is in the 1890s that he, uh, he joins um, sometime around 1899. And the Spanish-American War had ended. This is all during the Philippines, you know, okay. the, the big insurrections yeah, in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, the Filipino Revolution occurs in 1896. And then the Spanish-American War happens right after that. And then... Uh, United States through the Treaty of Paris, you know, is gifted the <laughs> Philippines and the, you know, the people there are not excited about this. Yeah, colonialism. Exactly. Yay. Yeah. So Ooh. between 1899, 1902, there's a basically a revolt of Filipino nationalists against these new, uh, new bosses, the Americans that are taking over the country. And uh, that is when Patrick Murphy is actually sent over there to serve. And it's it's kind of interesting. Um, on his Bertillion paper, on his his records, he's got all of these. Uh, we'll, we'll get to those. Mm-hmm. He's he's got a lot of marks and things from this time period in mm-hmm. his life. Mm-hmm. But uh, he he returns back to the United States in in uh, 1902 around there, and is at uh, a couple different forts. He ends up um, being honorably discharged from Fort Keogh in Montana, 
And uh, we particularly know this because at one point, while he's incarcerated, uh, he actually sends a letter to his commanding officer. His name was George E. Ball. And at this point, when he sends this letter, uh, it's, this is now Colonel George E. Ball um, in Kansas City. And Patrick sends a book called Behind Gray Walls. Okay. Yes, mm-hmm. about his experience yes. at the old Idaho State Penitentiary. And included in that book is his, his, his mugshot, his photo. Mm-hmm. And uh, George Ball said he got, he, you know, I received this book. I received this letter. Didn't know who you were. And then I opened it up after a couple of weeks. And immediately I remembered you at once. I remember you very well over in the Philippines and afterwards at Fort Yates and Fort Keogh. So, is, sorry, is that because he went by a different name than under the, exactly. he was in under, the military? He was in Daniel and Taylor, then, yeah, right. his true and then, name. Yeah. And then the name on the book would have said Patrick Murphy. Exactly, gotcha. P.C. Murphy on the front of that. And uh, the, the commanding officer, he, he says, I don't recall that you were that type when you were in the service. And I know that we had some trying times when all of the men in the company acquitted themselves accidentally. I really want to know what happened. What were they involved with? themselves accidentally. Yes. So they must have had a <laughs> rascally group over there. Ooh. But uh, apparently Patrick Murphy was not involved in it. Um, but, you know, he says, keep your head up. Uh, so, you know, we have this this great evidence of him serving in the Philippines and, and being a, a good soldier. And, you know, he would kind of keep this throughout his life. But he's got an issue with alcohol. Oh, no. Um, he's actually incarcerated the first time at 24 years old. Okay. And this is in 1907 in the federal penitentiary called Lemonsworth. Oh, yeah. Ooh, the brutal. Uh, he's in as a, a civil prisoner because he is caught um, stealing mail. Um, Can't do that. Yes, in Minnesota, he robbed a Minnesota oh. post office in 1907. You can't do that. No, don't don't do that. No, yeah. So he's a federal pen, uh, prisoner. Uh, he spends two years there and is discharged. And and interestingly, like I actually contacted the uh, um, National Archives for his record. And so you know, after a little bit of back and forth, uh, he sent me this information. And it's funny because the the record. Uh, has the Idaho warden sending letters to Levensworth asking, you know, I, I would like the records of Charles Miller. Uh, you know, he's, he is our Patrick Murphy and all this stuff. And uh-huh. I was like, wow, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Like 70 years later, 80 years later, I'm asking for the same records this, in the same location, right. probably in the same office as Seriously. the warden wrote that letter. Yeah, that's anyway, crazy. So, uh, yeah. And interestingly, like, the only thing that came up was a week before his release, uh, he got written up for holding an unnecessary conversation with inmate number 6050 in laundry this morning. I have uh, reproved this prisoner for this offense once before. I imagine he's just like saying his goodbyes, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was the charge in it? Unnecessary talking. Unnecessary. Okay, yeah. I'd be charged with that constantly. I am <laughs> always talking unnecessarily. We both would be. <laughs> uh, so after that, he's actually shipped out to, he's driven to Chickasaw, Oklahoma, and uh, doesn't turn up until 1915 when he moves to uh, northern Idaho to Kellogg. Okay. And uh, it's a mining town, and he's trying to find a job as a miner. Mm-hmm. He's friendless. He's He's poor, he's penniless, and uh, this is when he gets the clever idea while drinking to rob a saloon. There's uh, this little saloon. It's 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 a Bunker Hill uh, little mining area, and this saloon is owned by this Italian man. And Patrick basically lays in wait until everybody leaves, and he knows that 
this guy's counting up his money. Mm -hmm. And so Patrick walks inside. He's got a, a revolver in his hand. He says, give me all of your money and two bottles of whiskey. <laughs> and so the Italian guy does that. He gives him the money. He yeah. gives him, this is on August 18th, 1915, right around midnight. And so he gives him this money, he gives him the uh, the whiskey. Patrick starts stumbling outside and uh, he's, you know, he's plastered. He's He's been drinking all day mm -hmm. and kind of planning this thing. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't have any friends right. that he's doing this with. Just around the corner, there's this old man who uh, he's been working at this as a night watchman for the uh, the Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mining Company up there for years, for like a decade. And everybody in this town knows it. And this, this man yells, you know, sir, what are you doing? Like, you know, what's going yeah, on? Right. And Patrick shouts something back, some, some ex expletive at oh. him, picks up his revolver <gasps> and from a distance just drunkenly fires in the direction of this old man. And then he runs off. So sorry, how old is the night watchman? Oh man, I think he was sixty eight. Oh. He was he was in his his like mid to late. I guess 60s. to be fair, it was Kellogg, Idaho, um, which is not very big now. And yes. I assume even I mean it was going to be bigger in nineteen fifteen because of all the mining right, that's actually yeah. happening. But I still don't imagine that there's too much uh, trouble for a sixty eight year old. That's exactly. So that it, I yeah. guess that makes sense because. Yeah, that just seems a little old for someone mm -hmm. to be a night watchman over like a mining area. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Patrick makes this drunken shot into the darkness uh -huh. towards, you know, this man he can, you know, bleary eyed see in the distance mm -hmm. and it strikes the old man. He wow. he falls down. Uh Patrick starts running to the train depot and he's dropping coins and oh. cash the whole way. And, uh, Ansel and Gretel type, but with yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the he's next, not meaning to. yeah. Um, the townspeople hear the gunshot, and the police go and and find the old man, and you know, ask him what happened, and he's like, you know, I saw this this man come out of the bar, and uh, you know, I don't know where he went, but he shot me, and the, the old man dies soon after. But the next morning, they're searching for him, mm -hmm. and they actually find him passed out, drunk, amongst <laughs> these boxcars and. Uh, um logs in the train depot area and they 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 arrest they actually don't arrest him they grab the saloon keeper and say is this the man that robbed you and the saloon keeper's like yeah yeah that's him and so he's arrested patrick wakes up in the jail no idea oh, what happened no. and the whole town you know they're talking about lynching yeah. this man because this this old fellow was like beloved in this mm -hmm. town and he had he had so loyal he'd just been in here for so long and, uh, you know, the town was threatening to lynch Patrick Murphy right. over this. And just just prior to this, there's this guy named Charles George who committed a murder in Kellogg. And the town, they were they were going to lynch him. And, and at this point in Idaho history, a jury could call for the death sentence, which, you know, prior it was just the judge that could do that. Right. So the jury actually called for Charles George to be hung. Oh, wow. And so the prosecuting attorney sat down with Patrick Murphy and said, you know, Patrick, this this town is gonna hang you if you plead, you know, not guilty. The jury is gonna hang you. Yeah. And so, Patrick Murphy said, "Well, you know, what am I gonna do with this? If you plead guilty, we'll give you a life sentence." Hmm. So he, he immediately does that, and he arrives at the prison September ninth, nineteen fifty. So he is charged with murder in the murder first degree. In the first degree. In the first degree. Interesting. Yeah. But because he pled guilty, they gave him this option of of you know okay. life instead of 
huh. hanging. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So that is his start here. Okay. And, you know, we know so much about this man. I, I feel like I know him personally mm-hmm. just because of all the books that I've and, and short stories and things that I've read written by him. Mm-hmm. He was a hustler. He got things done. Yeah, he was quite a prolific guy out here, Yes, yeah. So on top of writing the book Behind Gray Walls, which I will quote uh, too much probably, um, he wrote uh, a book called A Soldier's Life in the Tropics, The Dying Burglar, Dakota Slim, Confessions of a Confidence Man, Shadows of the Gallows, which we own a copy of here, and several short stories, including uh, Inmate 999, which I, I found in a newspaper. That sounds and awesome. It's, Inmate 999. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. And it's basically about this escape attempt. And, like, you know, he's, like, got a knife to this guard's throat. And it's it's really good. Are these are these all nonfiction? Are some of them fiction? Uh, it's actually... So most of them are, are nonfiction. He, oh. he read a lot of books on uh, penology and life as as a prisoner and and ref how to reform prisoners and rehabilitate prisoners so uh, i'll get to that okay. yeah so he opens this book uh which he publishes in 1920 five years into his incarceration he writes this book he contacts this printing company that's still open called caxton printing company in caldwell idaho when i was going to college of idaho we would we'd have oh. to buy our books and we'd you know have to print our pamphlets and things through Caxton. And so it's amazing. Yeah. I've, I've been in contact with them a lot. He contacts the owner there and said, you know, I'm, I'm a inmate at the Idaho state penitentiary. I'm serving life here. Would you publish this book that I wrote about my experiences? And they go full force and say, yeah, we will support this 100%. Hmm. And they read his book and go, you know, this, this could be a, a force for change for good for prisoners across the country. So, Patrick opens his book talking about arriving at the prison. Um, So I'll just read this little excerpt. Uh, Chapter 1, When the Gates Swung Shut. Sorry, by excerpt, do you mean you were just reading the whole chapter? Just just (laughs) the first five pages. No, no, just like the first two paragraphs. Sorry. (laughs) Early in the gray dawn of a dreary September day in 1915, I arrived with a companion on an early morning train in Boise, the beautiful capital of Idaho. We were met at the depot by a man who conveyed to us a hack drawn up at the curb and to which was hitched a pair of nervous gray horses. We climbed into the rig and the team was swiftly driven through the business section of the city and turned towards the east, out Warm Springs Avenue. My thoughts were quite different from those of most people who land for the first time in the charming city of Boise, for I was in irons. 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 (laughs) My companion was a heavily armed guard who watched my every move. For 15 minutes, perhaps, we drove past stately homes and shaded lawns. Ahead of us, to the right, at some distance, a large building loomed before us. At first thought, it was to be our destination, but when we reached it, our driver drove straight past. It was the natatorium. And do you know much about the natatorium? That's the pool, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was opened in uh, May of 1892, and it was like the destination there was a this huge pool 125 foot long pool that was heated geothermally mm-hmm. um they had these uh all these rooms for cards and and tea parties and dances and things like that um but in 1934 the the geothermal actually rotted out the logs that oh. that held up the the building and and they actually collapsed on this super windy day in 1934 and since it was during the great depression Oh, there's, yeah, there's no the effort money. to ever repair yeah. it. So it has been replaced, and everybody can still go swim down there. But it was like an incredible place. 
Uh, but huh. the reason why he thought that, because there were these two big turrets right outside the front gate. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I, I wonder how many inmates would, would have been schlepped that way and mm-hmm. seen that and gone, mm-hmm. this looks tiny. Right. And then been driven up the, you know, take the so, left to it's their It's so hard for me to picture the idea of, like, nothing being around, like, just being able to see right. that because, you know, like, I drive down Warm Springs, like, that same way every day, mm-hmm. and it's just houses on houses on houses, and especially now in front of the penitentiary, we've got the archives and all those state buildings that are right there. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard for me to imagine, like, seeing nothing except... Yeah. These like big buildings on either side it's, of you. Yeah. You should definitely look up photos uh, of the natatorium, the historic natatorium, because it is a really beautiful, like mm-hmm. kind of interesting architecture. Uh, Moorish, I think. I don't know. I, I don't know architecture. I'm not even going to try to. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, though. It's really interesting. Uh, so it continues. A few hundred yards further on, we came to a stone arched gate. Beyond that was an open space, like a farm and against the brown hillside. In the distance, I saw the frowning walls of the Idaho State Penitentiary, and within those walls, I was to be confined for the rest of my natural life. This is where it gets really morbid. Oh. My eyes searched the premises surrounding the prison for the convict cemetery, where I myself would finally go when the sentence of the law expired. But as I failed to see any tombstones that represented a graveyard, I dismissed the subject from my mind and took a deep breath. As one who feels himself sinking under dark waters, wishing to inhale all of God's free air that was possible. The vehicle stopped before the prison office. The guard rang a bell to summon the turnkey on the early morning watch to open the door from within. The door swung open. No word was spoken. We stepped inside. The door closed behind us. A great key was turned in the lock, and iron bars and stone walls shut me forever in. Yeah, and then he's he's stripped, uh, he's given prison clothing, and he's sent out to a cell house. The details that he describes in this book, um, it really brings to life this prison because it's it's right in the middle of the prison's history, like right. 1920. Right. You know, it's, it started in 1872, so mm-hmm. 50 years in. And he meets all these characters that we talk about on tours. He talks about, uh, he he knows really well Harry Orchard, the assassin. He knows James Whitaker, the The 11-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah. So he he sees this little boy in the the prison yard and asks, uh, you know, who's that kid? Why is he here? And they have to explain, yeah, he's he's got a temper and all this stuff. So. Um, so he, he talks about being a fish and what his intake was like. Uh, this, this is a great, I think if we just read this to, Mm -hmm. to visitors, uh, Bertilliant, when you, when you're, when you're processed here, which in the parlance of the prison is to be mugged, weighed, measured, fingerprints taken, and all scars and marks noted. I was then taken back inside and to the bathhouse and given a bath, then to the tailor shop and measured for clothing. The barber shop came next for a haircut and a shave. From there, I was taken to the storeroom before the captain of the yard, where I was given a number and assigned to a cell. And that number, of course, is 2338. Um, and from his Bertillion, all those markings, you know, him writing about it and then us looking at the prison records of it, um, we can see that he's 5'10 and 5'8 inches tall, 161 pounds, his dark brown hair, blue eyes, medium complexion, uh, his head, face, arms, and legs are badly scarred and tattooed. And the warden describes his right arm as badly scarred from an explosion, which mm-hmm. probably came from his time in the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. Um, and his legs also have these are really pitted and badly scarred as well. He's got some pretty interesting tattoos, though, as you are into those. Uh, 
He has this little small indistinct one on his left wrist. Uh, he has a ship and a wreath on his inner left arm above, and above a heart and a hand clasp, a snake tail uh, near the elbow of his inner right arm, above a skull and crossbones, and then down on his right leg, right in the front. This is my favorite. I wish I had a photo of this. It's a banana tree in a Filipino house. So oh. something he probably got, you know, in the military yeah. while serving. Yeah. It's just amazing. I, I'm always so interested in early tattoos because this is 1915. Yeah. And uh, I just, I would imagine they would not have the same technology mm-hmm. uh, in terms of guns and things like that. Understanding So like, do you yeah, have like... to just... I just, I don't, I'm very curious about them. <laughs> well, we do have the marked men prison tattoo. We sure here do. At the old men, which, you know, that is mostly a prison tattoo thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I did read a little bit in there. It does sound terrible. Yeah, um, yeah. But I guess each his own. Yeah, little little scary, a little unclean. Yeah. Um, it'd be a mark that you'd have for the rest of your life, and yeah. hopefully it doesn't take your life. Ooh. Um, so, Oof. anyway, so Patrick, he gets Bertillion, he gets his mugshot taken, all that stuff. He enters the yard. He's like, okay, I'm going to do my own time, do my own number. I'm going to mm-hmm. separate myself from everybody. But immediately, this old timer, this guy named John Fleming, walks up to him. He's like, hey, you know, what do you what do you have? And he's like, I've got the book, which means mm-hmm. I've got a life sentence. Mm-hmm. This this John Fleming also serving for first degree murder. He killed a, a neighbor of his he was they were fighting over ditch water which is you know this is idaho of course yeah. that's a huge yep. thing um sat in a bush and shot and killed the guy and um he was released at in 1920 uh, at the age of 70 oh. interesting so okay. he's he's kind of an older older mm-hmm. con and he takes patrick under his wing and uh he kind of leads him through the yard but murphy while he's walking around he says uh this is what he kind of sees. The first first thing off, young men in perfect health, fat men with big bellies, lean men with bullet heads, square heads and bald heads, young boys with weak wills and effeminate gestures, strong men with simple faces, tough mugs and sissies, men refined and well-mannered, others stupid and ignorant. Some we saw sitting around in groups, some standing or shifting about, and others lounging on the ground. If so, he'd made that rhyme, that could belong in a Dr. Seuss book. I know. <laughs> we should do that. We should, <laughs> we should create a Dr. Seuss-esque book of all the convicts. That would be so, so funny and so oh wildly inappropriate. Gosh, so Look wildly. for that in our gift shop in a couple years. <laughs> it was born right here, that idea. I love it. And then, you know, not long after he arrives, within 30 days, he actually gets tossed into hard boil which is in the territorial prison it was on the west wing it's actually where they had their death row cells well and uh there was one charlie george the guy that was convicted just before patrick the one that they said if you don't you know plead guilty you're gonna end up just like charlie george you're gonna hang he's in that death row cell uh eventually charlie would be commuted to life sentence so patrick is locked up and he doesn't he has no idea why and he's just like it's probably a stool pigeon, a rat. Mm. And he uses all these all this prison lingo, which is also amazing. Yeah. Like you learn all kinds of different words that the inmates used here at this time. Um, but uh, that's where he has his first kind of inner battle with prison, which I think a lot of people go through. And mm-hmm. he puts it in such a good way. In the loneliness of that cell, with all the world seemingly against me, without even the sympathy of cons like myself, who were shut out from everything worthwhile in life, was born a feeling of resentment against the whole scheme of life. My heart was teeming with hate. 
My soul was seared with revenge, and the perspiration of despair that trickled from my temples would have poisoned a rattlesnake. I love that line. Yeah, he's I, very elo- elegant, eloquent. Yeah. I can't yeah. speak. Yeah, and he talks about, like, you know, I I left home at 13. Like, I have, like, a, what's that, an eighth grade education, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, so he's like, I'm not a writer. This is just me just with a pencil and trying my best. So Good. I apologize. And it's Goodness. Yeah. That's his best. Then, yeah. Oof. So, like, I'm done for because right. I try really hard and it doesn't come out sounding like that. I love that. It was very good. Would have poisoned a rattlesnake. Somehow I mastered the feeling of revenge and a beautiful calm of stubborn resistance settled over me. Although I was in the mire as deep as a man could get, alone in the world, reviled and wrecked for all time to come, with life imprisonment, surrounded by a few such rats... I made up my mind to rise up in a creditable matter above such things as the rat who was the cause of my solitary confinement. So he kind of gets this like inner res- resolve that like, you know, I'm, I just got to get through this. Right. I'm in the worst possible place and I'm just going to change my perspective. And uh, he's, he's released soon after mm-hmm. and uh, he immediately goes into business. He's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do the best that I can. Mm-hmm. He gets hooked up with uh, Harry Orchard, who is running the shoe shop. And Harry Orchard is running a whole uh, junk shop. He's, he's making all these goods and selling them in the, in the prison hobby craft store at the administration building. And uh, Patrick immediately sees that he's got this whole business ring going. Harry Orchard has inmates working for him, making all these objects and things. Mm-hmm. And so Patrick picks up some, some chicken bones and he sits in the corner of the yard and he starts rubbing them and he, he creates toothpicks out of them. Hmm. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to sell these toothpicks. And with that money, I'm going to buy some supplies and just keep working my way up. And he does. He ends up makes so many goods and uh, he has all these inmates working for him. He's making money left and right. Uh, the guards in, this is absurd. They, they let him build a shop in the middle of the Rose Garden. He builds this little shack and it, there's a photo of it sitting right next to the gallows and he got to work in there as as long as he wanted. Hmm. And like he had built up so much trust and status with the, the prison administration. Beyond that, the absurdity continues because <laughs> the prison administration lets him sell outside of the prison gift shop and in local cigar stores. There's this cigar... Like he gets to leave and go to the cigar store or he his, does, or, his, or his, his stuff? His goods. Yeah, okay. his goods. This, this place called the Murphy's Cigar Store in downtown Boise... There's convict-made goods being sold there, and the money's wow. going right back to him. So he's wow. making money yeah, left and right. Hand over fist. Yes, and he's writing books. He's writing all these short stories. He's sending them to different magazines across the country. He gets this book published in 1920. Then he publishes uh, The Shadow of the Gallows, which was just about life sentences and, and hangings and execution, the history of all that. And uh, well, and he was here for that spate of executions in the Rose Garden, those six between was it 21 and 29? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he would have been very close, up close and personal with all of that. Yeah, he would have witnessed. Oh, that's crazy to think about. Um, he helps build up the Rose Garden and he's like constantly cutting roses and sending them to his friends and admirers. And people are writing his file is chock, yeah, (laughs) his file is chock full of, of letters from people saying, you know. He's been there for six years. There's, he's done his time. Like he made a mistake. We've all made mistakes. You should let this man go. And you know the the pardon board is like, no, I, the people of Kellogg, that is offensive to them. Yeah. Like the victim and all of his friends and yeah, everybody absolutely. else involved. So, 
I mean, it's it's amazing to read these letters uh, that flood in for him. Um, he also spurred on the idea of the shirt factory. Oh, yeah, so okay. we kind of talked about that in the first episode. Uh, he encourages all these rehabilitative programs, and he says, you know what? We would save so much money at this institution if you made a shirt factory and sold those shirts and if if you sent them to like the state hospital and the mm -hmm. St. Anthony, the mm -hmm. industrial school. And, you know, three years after this book is published, we've got a shirt factory. Wow. And that leads to the construction of a new cell house and a, a barn and, and the development of more farmland. And so like he is kind of key to the whole rehabilitation yeah. movement in, in my mind. Yes. Yeah. So it's, I mean, this guy was crazy and incredible to me. In 1927, he publishes a revised version of Behind Gray Walls. Mm -hmm. And this one includes a lot of what he had in the 1920 version, which is only like 70 pages max. Um, this new version is, is like over 100, 100 pages. And he gets into spirituality. Okay. So it's it's very... Yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of spiritualism <laughs> in this early 20th century that is uh, a little scary, but... Now, are you meaning spiritualism? Because I know that in this is a little bit later, but like spirituality in the 1800s often meant um, or like spiritualism was the ghost thing. Is it that, or yeah, do you just I mean, mean it's that same era? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he he gets into this this group, um, this guy named Edmund Shaftesbury, <laughs> and Edmund Shaftesbury is actually an alias for Albert Webster. Edgerly, well. who is like a self-help guru who wrote hundreds of books and basically started this huge uh, utopian commune. And some of his oh, books yeah. include sex magnetism, Ooh. mental magnetism, transference of thought, and this is my favorite one, universal magnetism and private lessons in the magnetic control of others. Well, I could use all of those, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is during a time where magnetism where mm -hmm. you know okay. I, yeah, so yeah it is kind of that spiritualism yeah yeah idea interestingly in in this revised edition of behind gray walls there's this chapter where patrick writes about this psychic experience he has and this this is like the most psychedelic thing written in 1927 <laughs> he says uh he's sitting he's he's like daydreaming and he's like falls asleep and in this dream he he's it's like he's there and he's got this this note in his hand and he reads it and then uh, he comes to right after, and the note's not there. So this is what he's, he read. Coming to you is a vast fund of information, intellectual wealth that will unroll before you the gigantic domain of creation. You will see the dimmed past, the black void, the breath of life, the awakening of all powerful thought, all molded into the living present. You'll see the mastermind that moves the universe, worlds, suns, stars, earth, and mankind. Your mind will be carried to all parts of the heavens. Your subconscious or other mind is your eternal part of life. It will be met and talked to. Your past and all its disappointments will be forgotten. The future will dawn bright and big. All the knowledge you will need, you will have when you receive the full set of textbooks by Shaftesbury. Oh, <laughs> How did he get product placement in his dream? <laughs> I don't know, but I can tell you, textbook by chapter, the, the world's greatest living teacher. He plunges you far in advance of the unusual studies of psychology. He will train you. He will save you. Wait, so does that, if Shaftesbury is product placing in Patrick Murphy's dream, yes. does that mean his books actually work? I think they, they might. They actually work. Because then a couple days later, a friend of his... A, living a thousand miles away, sends him the Shaftesbury books. 
Now, is this just a great thing to write in a book to make people go, wow, this guy's got some powers? Or did it really happen? Oh, Ooh, uh, I like that he wrote about it. I right, think it's fascinating. Right. Also, um, yeah. do you remember those note cards that we found out in the women's ward back in October? Oh. Do you think he wrote those? Because they sound very oh similar. Talk a lot about Jesus and they talk a lot about um, yes. going to heaven or hell. Very, very yeah. So I think without context, it's like, so, what is this? <laughs> yeah, is back this in mean? October, and it's what uh, May now, we found these note cards that um, I'll see if I actually took pictures of them all yeah. because they were all wild. And yes. if we have time, maybe at the end, I'll read some that because be it's, they're hilarious. <laughs> they <laughs> and they sounded very much like what you were reading. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Patrick eats this stuff up. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. goes through all of these books and his. This 1927 revised version is a little bit uh, a completely different book. I wish that he had said, like, finding myself behind gray walls or, like, yeah, because we're going to have to sell two separate books. Because if I've been, I retyped the whole first edition. Oh, my goodness. The second edition I have not done because I'm like, ah, it's it's very (laughs) woo-woo, which, you know, I like that stuff. I think it's interesting. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is all happening. The 1927, he does this. 1928, he applies for a pardon. And, you know, letters flood in, in uh, into this place. The the Caxton, the manager of, of Caxton, the printing press, actually sends a letter to the Idaho Secretary of State talking about how disappointed he is that uh, Patrick Murphy isn't released in 1928. Mm-hmm. He, he writes, could you find the time, Fred? To drop me a line in confidence <laughs> and let me know just what the situation is. Um, then he says, basically, I don't want to keep telling Patrick that he's going to be released if if the members of your board are not going to release him. Right. So, you know, if we have to wait until all the members are, are off the board and new members are on, like, let me know because I, I just want to stop giving him, leading right. him on here. Sure. And then he he says he ends his letter saying his crime was a terrible one, but he has paid a terrible penalty for it. And instead of becoming bitter and vindictive, he has grown in a marked way, mentally and spiritually, since he has been incarcerated. And I think you know everything we've talked about. He was a model inmate, mm-hmm. and there were no infractions written up except for that one time the hard boil thirty days into a sentence <sighs> for something that he had no yeah, idea what it was about. Right. Um, and so he's he's in there. He gets rejected in 1928. Um, in 1930, he has this operation, and it doesn't. There's no evidence. There's no talk about what the operation is. But he actually writes a final will and testament in case something happens to him. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if if I die or if I go mentally insane, mm-hmm. you know, I want this to go. So this is how much money he was rolling it uh, to Walter Mitchell from my account, twenty five dollars cash and two hundred copies of my book, Shadows of the Gallows. My machine shop and all machinery. What books are now at Caxton Printers? Be sent to my brother Tom Taylor in Hollister, Oklahoma, including all books in my shop. To Columbus Anderson, $25 and all my personal papers. Also, Professor Shafterbury's course of studies, papers, and books to be sent by him to Tom Taylor. To men working uh, in the kitchen, $39.99 cash to be divided equally. Oh, yeah, isn't that kind of sweet? That's kind of sweet, but it I, seems like not that much money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, well, it, was, it is 1930. 1930 yeah. Well, yeah. During the Depression. During the yeah, Depression, our, yeah, I yeah. guess, depending on how many you guys are in there, you know, 10 bucks is not bad. A couple cartons, maybe a couple yeah. cartons for the year, yeah. 
for burial, the sum of $100 by the Christian Science Church. No, he was a Christian scientist. Yes, he was. <gasps> that's, that's, oh he came in, uh, he came in saying he was Methodist and, um, yeah. Uh, and then to Tom Taylor, the money remaining after all bequests have been paid and all money derived from sale of books left with Caxton brick printers. So the operation apparently went well, uh, except that he was mostly blind afterwards. So oh. I think it, maybe it was a tumor or something mm. cranial. That's that's just my thought, but there's I have not been able to find out any reference to it. Uh, but he's pardoned on July 7th, uh, 1931, and he goes to Kansas. Or Arkansas, I'm sorry. He goes to Arkansas. Arkansas. He goes to Ar- Arkansas. That's it, Arkansas, yes. <laughs> um, and then we don't really know what happens to him uh, until 1933. He's arrested in Fort Worth, Texas, under investigation and immediately released. And then uh, in May 1934, he sends a letter from El Centro, California, which is like on the border of uh, Mexico and California, uh, southernmost county. He writes the warden, you know, I was an in- inmate at your state prison. I was sentenced from Wallace, Idaho, all this stuff. Uh, I wrote several books while I was there. Those books I am now selling. My discharge uh, from your prison was in a house in Arkansas. The home was in a fire and burned down. Hence, I lost my discharge. In selling this books, it will be of great help to me to have a copy of my discharge from your prison or just a brief statement as to the foregoing. If you send me such, I will be very grateful to you. So his books burn and his discharge from the prison burns. And the warden sends him uh, the statement. Three months later, Patrick writes another letter with a dollar enclosed with it. And he says, you sent me a statement a few months ago, but I was in uh, and had a few books on the back of the car. While crossing a small stream of water, the box fell in the water. All contents were spoiled. Among them was the statement you sent me. The pardon papers were in a house in Arkansas that was burned a year ago, and your statement went as above stated. In selling the books I wrote while in prison, it is a great handicap to me not to have something to show that I was pardoned from prison there. I draw a pension from the government as I am now almost blind, and I do what I can in selling these books uh, about which I wrote uh, Shadows of the Gallows, where I lived for 16 years behind the gray stone walls of your prison. Send me a copy of pardon or a flashy statement like the last one you sent bearing the great big seal of Idaho. And so the warden does that and includes the dollar back. He's like, you know, this this our office doesn't charge for those documents. So that's it. I don't know what happens to Patrick Murphy oh, after wow. this. So he's and and he actually sends that letter to uh, San Jacinto Valley um in uh Hemet, California. Uh this little town hmm. kind of east of LA. Okay. And uh, I, you know, I've dug and dug and tried to figure out if he was ever married after this, uh, where he died, right. where he's buried. Did he write any other books? Um, anything else? Or or if any, uh, any of these other books are, I don't know, available anywhere. Because uh, you can actually go to, go to um, what is that place called? There's a website. If you search behind gray walls, Patrick Murphy, you can find his book for free online. You can oh, download it. Oh, is it on uh, Project Gutenberg? Uh, it's not on that it one. It might be on Project Gu- it Gutenberg. Is, it should be yeah. in I think it's called now. archives.org. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one, one of those websites. But uh, then we, we do have letters from the 60s, 1961 and in 1965, two students in Idaho who come across his book. And they're just like, hey, can you tell me more about this guy? And mm-hmm. both times the warden's like, you know, there's no way of, for us to know if he's alive or dead 
he right. unless he gets in trouble right. we don't know and right. that's that's it and you know that's what we see huh. a lot yeah. um but yeah it's still kind of a mystery and i i like have to find out what happened to this man yeah. i i spent so many hours digging up his story and writing yeah. rewriting his book and like oh <laughs> i gotta know book. it i think the the biggest my favorite quote from him though uh comes in his oh towards the end of his book it says uh it seems to me that most of the trouble in this world is because people do not understand each other and the motives in each other's hearts and i believe a man when he determines to do it can make good anywhere and under any circumstances and I think that that's kind of what Patrick did. Yeah. And he had this personal magnetism that mm -hmm. he developed, this kind of spiritual thing that uh, that he found himself in prison, interestingly yeah. enough. And uh, yeah, I, oh. I want to find more about him. And so if anyone listening has, you know, any of these other books, you know, uh, Soldier in the Tropics or any of that, like, please contact <laughs> I. I will just borrow it and digitize it for myself because I have to read these things. <laughs> but I think that's it for Patrick Murphy. I, oh, wow. He is the namesake of this yeah, this podcast for, sure. for that whole reason. And and I just barely scratched on yeah. this book because he yeah, talks yeah. about people he experiences, the rats and all these funny characters he comes across and talks about people dying in there and, you know, what caused that to happen and Oh, I, I will definitely reference those in future episodes as we talk about the inmates that he talks about. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Woo. Well, nice job, Anthony. Oh, thanks, guy. Yeah. <laughs> if you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation. Any donation is appreciated and it will go toward improving the quality of this podcast and enabling us to continue to bring you the stories that we love and we hope that you love too. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. There you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group. So the lady I'm going to talk about today, it's not going to be super in-depth. Um, I knew that Anthony was going to do a big one, so I wanted to do kind of a smaller one. And um, I kind of went with a similar, not meaning to kill someone, but actually killing someone. So the inmate I'm going to talk about today, she is number 8151, Grace Elizabeth Scott. She is one of our older women, I think one of the oldest. She was in uh, when she was 53 years old. She pled not guilty to um, the original charge, which I believe was murder in the first degree. She wow. was, and I'll get into this, she was eventually charged with involuntary manslaughter, got 10 years. She came in January 24th, 1951. She was only 4'9". Wow. She's just tiny. a little, little, oh. little lady. She and that's, just looks like yeah, a cute she's just grandma. a cute little, cute little, you know, yeah. Cute little grandma. So the sources that I have per usual are the inmate files, some Idaho Daily Statesman articles, which is what the Idaho Statesman used to be called. Yeah. Um, and then quite a bit, again, on Ancestry.com. Always thankful for that website. So Grace Elizabeth Scott was born Grace Elizabeth Shaver on November 11th, 1893. Now, throughout all of her records, they consistently state that she was born in 1897. But census records dispute that. And her mother's death date disputes this. So this oh. is how we know she was born in 1893. So she was born in Boise. She was one of four kids. Her mother um, gave birth to stillborn twins oh in 1895 and died herself. Oh 
during that childbirth. Oh, yeah. So, so she died in 1895. There's yeah. no way that Grace could have been born Whoa. in 1897. So this 53 is probably based on that 1897. So she's probably closer to 60, yeah, which yeah. would make more sense. Because I was looking, I remember looking at her mugshot and thinking like, she looks really old for being only 53. Um, so it would make sense that she's probably closer to 60. So she attended school. She went to Maple Grove grade school until wow. sixth grade. That's still there. Oh I think it's Maple goodness. Grove Elementary yeah. now. I actually just played soccer at the park across the street <laughs> from it. So uh, we still pass it to this day. Uh, and then in 1911, she was 17 years old. She marries Charles McDonald in Boise. I think he's quite a bit older than her. They have one child in 1913. His name is Charles Melvin McDonald Jr. Oh. He dies when he's only two months old. Oh. And according to his death certificate that I found on Ancestry.com, it's from complications of syphilis, oh. which is so deeply upsetting to me because I'm pretty sure the only reason babies get syphilis is because their mother has it yeah, and transmits exactly. it during childbirth, and which I, don't yeah. Google image no, search. no, 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 oh, do that, not do that. That, that is traumatic things. Yeah, no, no, will do. very bad, yeah. very bad. Oh. So, just a tragic death. Yeah, but it's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, it's it is so hard, and a lot of women that we have end up losing children, and it's very heartbreaking. So Grace and Charles remain married till 1944, and then Charles himself dies of cardiac failure. Uh, he was in his late 50s. Uh, and so then, in 1947, so three years later, she marries Guy J. Scott, and he's seven years her junior, which I always oh. love when, when women marry men younger, younger than them, because yeah. it doesn't happen a ton. And uh, like March 1947, they got married in Winnemucca, Nevada, and then they relocated to Horseshoe Bend, which is, what, 20 miles-ish away yeah, um, yeah. From, from Boise. It's a cute little town. Little you have north, to drive yeah. past it to go up into the mountains and everything. So um, it's passed through pretty frequently for those of us who live in the valley. Now, the Scots, as far as I can tell, were a pretty unassuming couple. Horseshoe Bend is small enough that everyone kind of knows everyone. Everyone's always sort of in everyone's business. But again, I, like everyone really liked them. And so they were the, the couple were known to frequent bars in town. But Grace wasn't known as a particular like neither of them were like drunkards by any yeah, means. They just yeah. that's probably where they went to socialize. Totally, and yeah. again, it's a small town. What else is there to do? She said she herself said she drank only occasionally. And for the most part, people tended to agree with her. They'd say, yeah, we saw her at the bar, but I didn't really see her drinking or anything yeah. like that. But this kind of comes into question on July 13th, 1950. So what happens, there's lots of eyewitness accounts, so we have a pretty good idea of what actually happens, which you don't always get. No. So Grace uh, is driving a car. She tries to make a right turn. And it's so hard for us to understand now how this happens because we have incredible um, power steering. Yeah, they did not have power steering in 1950. Like you have to just crank that thing as yeah, hard as yeah. you can to get it to turn. And her car is probably twice the weight. Like, right. Huge. Yeah. So she's driving a car. She tries to make a right turn and she ends up veering into a gravel path and starts probably starts to kind of spin the way sometimes you can under gravel. Yeah. So I, I don't know if she kind of started to panic or what happened but she tries to get back onto the road and in doing so as she corrects she steps on the gas like way too hard because she's trying to get out of that gravel which yeah. is probably just making her wheel spin so she pushes on the gas as hard as she could and the the car just shoots across both lanes oh. ends up running off the other side and um there is a car on the other side and the the owner of the car is outside trying to repair something in his hood oh. And my guess is his back is to her, so he doesn't yeah. see it coming. And she ends up shooting right into him and his car. 
There's not a ton of details as to if she ran over him or if she simply just hit him and he sort of fell out of the way. And we don't know if she recognized that she'd hit him, if she just didn't even notice, because then she backs up. And luckily, I think the first time she hit him, I think he fell enough out of the way that when she backed up, she hit his car again, but she didn't hit him. Oh, my god! Yeah, luckily, because I think I read somewhere that they thought that she had hit him again. But it was I read a little bit closer and it says that she hit his car again. So she hit his car. She's probably super panicked. She drives off. So the the man that she hit, his name was John Hoke. He's taken to the hospital. She's uh, immediately arrested just for, um, I think, probably something like, because he hadn't died yet, so it was probably like reckless driving or, you know, something like that. He ends up dying 15 days later, and that's when she's charged with murder. Now, one witness said, um, so the, the big question is, is she drunk when all of this is happening? So one witness said that he had interacted with her just a few minutes before the accident. I think she had bought fruit or something from him just on a stand by the side of the road. He said she seemed super sober. And then, But another witness said that he saw her at a bar and she had a bottle of beer in her hand. But he said, I, didn't, I don't remember seeing her take a drink of it. Right, yeah. So that still doesn't even prove anything because she could have just had it and you know not drank out of it or was taken home for her husband or like who knows what the situation is that was just 10 minutes um, in a local tavern before the accident everyone overall agreed it was a total freak accident she did not mean to hit john did Um, she get out like after she hit him backed up did she drive off she drove off she didn't get out to make sure everything was okay because i i would imagine as a 50 something year old woman and the other thing is people actually talk about that she was actually like a really bad driver. <laughs> um, um, so uh, this is an actual quote from one of the witnesses. He says... I was going to say, I think that's just... Uh, yeah. yeah. He says, quote, Mrs. Scott was a very poor driver. She drove slow and no one could tell where she was going. Oh, so I. No. the other thing is She's that... Tiny. She probably uh, yeah, exactly. Her, yeah. Another person says that the car that she was driving was too big for her to be driving. Oh. And so that would then make it a little bit more difficult for her to control when it runs off the road. So she was driving a Buick 8, which I looked up. It looks a little bit like Doc Hudson in cars. I'm not a car person. um, So for those of you who aren't, then that's a visual for you. It's a little bit different because Doc Hudson is is a Hudson Hornet, Uh but but a Buick 8 is going to look similar to that. Beefy car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she was arrested later that day, pled not guilty, found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Uh, she's then sentenced to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and she enters on January 24th, 1951. Now, as soon as she's in there, residents of Horseshoe Bend are writing the warden. They, they're they saying all sorts of things. She's a really nice lady. She would never do this on purpose. That's a, 10 years is a really harsh sentence. Oh, yeah. Some people thought that the, quote, village marshal, who I think is probably just like the town sheriff or yeah, whatever, but yeah. just in a really small town, they thought that he was too aggressive um, in prosecuting her for the crime. Like, he just wanted to get her, and maybe he was friends with John. Like, who knows? Yeah. I um, mean, that's... Yeah. The town is so small that you would you would pass these people every right. day probably. Totally. So, wow. Yeah. So lots of letters into the warden for this. There's a court order that actually demands her release the day after she enters. Mm. It's because her bail was paid while she was waiting. Because she actually appealed. She ended up appealing this decision because wow. she was so adamant that she was not guilty of this thing. And so she ended up appealing. So her her bail was paid during that appeal. So she was actually released. She didn't have to stay in jail. There's no source to 
to confirm what happens, but her appeal must have been denied. She yeah. took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Like she was so sure that this was a, an incorrect conviction. So it must have been denied because she's returned to the prison on January 17th, 1952, which is like 51 weeks after she's first released, basically. Wow. So she's almost out for oh, a whole oh year. Gosh. Um, during her incarceration, she's a model inmate. She always did what she was told. She spent a lot of her time doing needlework. She had regularly attended religious services. Um, and as I said, at least 50 members of the Horseshoe Bend community wrote the warden vouching for her good nature and wow. just that everything was just really unfortunate. Was was this, mm -hmm. were they each individual letters or was it one of those placards um, that I think say... there were both. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people would write in with their business stationery yeah. and then people, I think they put out a big... You know, sign, petition. sign yeah, this sign petition. This if yeah, you think, exactly. And you think that she there, should be. There's so many of those. Yeah, in these records. totally. And I just was looking at one the other day that was just like, it was probably at least 50 pages itself of yeah, signatures. It's Crazy. Incredible. Even the Boise County prosecuting attorney said that he didn't think that she deserved to stay very long because she was such an upstanding citizen. Wow. So the overall consensus again was just that this was a really terrible circumstance, really terrible accident. Yeah. She didn't mean to, she was really good upstanding citizen. She didn't deserve to be in there for very long. So um, on January 21st, 1952, um, which is uh, three days after she gets in, <laughs> um, her sentence is commuted to three years. Wow. Yeah. And then, Whoa, okay. and then she is released on February 17th, 1953. So she really only stays in prison for about a year, a year and a month or wow. so, which is crazy. So, so it says like the time that she served is technically two years and 24 days, <laughs> yeah. but she spent an entire year not in prison yeah, <laughs> while yeah. she was awaiting her appeal. That's such an amazing part of, I know. of United States mm -hmm. uh, process, yeah. you know, judicial process. Totally. After her release, um, she and Guy, they moved to Cascade, which is about 40 miles north mm -hmm. of Horseshoe Bend. Um, Cascade is beautiful. If you haven't been, please go. Guy dies in 1966. He's buried in Cascade. She ends up in Caldwell somehow. Um, she doesn't, she must have, I don't know if she has family or she has friends down there because she actually lived most of her life in that Boise area with Charles. Yeah. So she would have kind of known people in the area would be my guess. Do you know, did she drive or... I, I hope I hope not because <laughs> in 66 road. she would have yeah. been over 70 oh yeah and she's too small yes. she, she has to sit on she needs to sit on some phone books and oh. use some bricks on her shoes and things like that she dies on June 20th 1970 in a Caldwell hospital I read it was after a long illness but it didn't say in particular what illness it was she, I mean 1970 she would have been oh I have to do math again yeah, 77, wow. so almost 80. Okay. Um, she is actually buried over in Morris Hill, oh. Morris Hill Cemetery. Wow. So that's that's Grace Elizabeth Scott. Like I said, it's not a particularly long one, yeah, um, yeah. but it, I think it does kind of fit that theme of, uh, you know, accidentally killing someone and not meaning to. Right. She may have even been drunk a little bit. I don't think she was yeah. quite... I don't think she was quite Patrick Murphy. Yes, um, which I did. Was. I did have a question about Patrick Murphy. Yes. Why is it that I've been assuming that he's Irish this whole time? Oh, just because his because his name is name Irish. Is very okay. Irish. Yeah. Don't yeah. we have a we have like a one of those binders upstairs and it is like Irish experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's just, uh, just the, the not so the Saint Patrick's. It was uh, one I that you. I put it together. Like a, okay. It was just people it was just like named a pun. Patrick. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. You know we work with Amber, so <laughs> we, it's very pun friendly. We love the puns. Yes, we do. So. That was an early. That was the, like the first thing I did when I started working here, and I just found all the Patricks and gotcha. yeah, okay. the naughty Patricks. Okay, because so. I was 
I always assumed that he was like from Ireland. So when you said yeah. he was born in Texas, I was like, well, this has already taken uh, a turn. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. Totally. No, this is great because I was somewhat aware of her, of her crime. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking myself that she ran into him and then backed over him. Right. But uh, that, thank you for yeah. clearing that up. Cause... Yeah. Well, and like I said, I um, when you first read the description of the crime from this witness, that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. But I made sure and, and I like read word for word and it says okay. that that she backed up and hit the car. I think it says like hit his or hit, hit like it might be a typo. It says like hit right. him car yeah, or something yeah. like that. So it's more that she hit his car rather than him, thankfully. Yeah. And I think, you know, it took him over two weeks mm-hmm. um, to succumb to the injuries, which I would have been interested to know what those injuries were, why yeah. it took so long. So yeah, she didn't have to stay for very long. And, and as I said, she was one of our oldest. So Yeah. And just like the townspeople, mm-hmm. you know, riding in on her behalf mm-hmm. is... That's one of those amazing things that that yeah. shows the humanity right. uh, of of the inmates that served right. here. You know, many of them they were they made mistakes, and that's right. just like her. Well, just and Patrick Murphy too. Like yeah. he had all those people on his side. And oh, women yeah. often tend to get people in the community who will vouch for them. Like it's mm-hmm. it's fairly common, only because the attitude toward female criminals is very different. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. So that's that's Grace. That's one of our. Wow. One of our ladies. Well, this has been a fun, it, it fun has episode, been, yeah. Sky. Thank you. No, thank you. Any um, idea who you want to talk about next week? Yeah, next week's going to be my big episode. Yeah. I'm going to do, I think, Josie Kensler, <gasps> um, who basically, in the way that Patrick Murphy did a lot to contribute to the way that the the men's prison was, this she did a lot to contribute to the, the women. Interesting. Well, women, I, I haven't thought about who my pairing is going to be yet, but... Okay. Uh, then yeah. it'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise to both of us. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, this has been fun. Yes. Do your own time. Do your own number. And we'll see you next week. Yes.